And real quickly, uh, just something I just wanted to just say uh, before I got to the actual teaching, I used a number of resources as I was preparing for this over the last month or month and a half or so. Uh, but the th I, just wanted, I just brought with me the three that I found the most valuable. The first thing, and I think Graham has talked about this before, is just the importance of having a great study Bible. There's so much information uh, in here, you know, maps and uh, timelines and study notes, just fantastic. The other one was this book that my dad gave me that I didn't know what to do with until Graham told me what a Bible dictionary was. Um, but it's Unger's Bible Dictionary, and just amazing. When I, because uh, as I was tr approaching like King David, you know, how do you how do you sum up King David in two minutes? You know, I went to uh, the Bible Dictionary just to get kind of an overview. And so, as you're doing your own personal Bible study, I just encourage you just to get. There's so many resources out there available. And the last one, maybe my favorite, was this little uh, Word Bible Handbook by uh, Lawrence Richards that I found in my mom's basement. Um, and it is, it's just fantastic. It's just a real quick and concise, um, what, what, what would you call that? Uh, uh, summary. Yes, a summary of the, the contents of the whole Bible. You know, I you can look up Jeremiah and you can get all the context and, and it goes through the whole book. So just want to encourage you uh, as you're doing your own Bible study to, to take advantage of the innumerable resources that are out there and available. Anyway, all right, so let's get started. Um, we, th in this second session, are going to be talking, uh, we're going to be covering everything from Joshua uh, all the way through to the, the kingdom of Israel. I am going to be teaching Joshua, uh, Judges, and the, the beginning of the United Kingdom, the monarchy, and then I'm going to turn it over to Graham, who's going to talk about the, uh, the kingdom of Israel after the kingdom is divided. Um, the book of Joshua tells this, or the story, the chunk that I'm going to tell, excuse me, is going to cover everything from the conquest of Canaan, so right where Graham left off, up to uh, the fall of Judah in 586. Okay, so Joshua picks up right where Deuteronomy leaves off. The Israelites are standing on the east side of, of the Jordan River. Moses has, has passed away, and they are poised, and they're ready to take the, the promised land. And here they are for a, a second time in, in, you know, in preparation to, to take this land that God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that, that Graham talked about. This was the, uh, the promised land that God promised to Abraham. And before they, they go in, let me do this. Before they go into the land after Moses dies, they raise up a new leader. Somebody else has to lead the Israelites. And so they appoint Joshua to take over from Moses and, and to lead the people. And so you might be wondering, all right, well, who is this Joshua character? Well, we've actually seen him quite a bit through, uh, through the narrative of the, the Pentateuch. Uh, Joshua, he is the assistant and, as we're learning, the successor of Moses. And earlier on, we see him as Hosea, um, but eventually Moses changes his name to Joshua. And he uh, kind of assists and helps Moses with various things. He is a victorious uh, commander of, of the Israelites in battle. He accompanied Moses halfway up Mount Sinai when Moses first received the Ten Commandments. 
He helped oversee the, the tabernacle after the, the golden calf incident. And he was one of the two spies, along with Caleb, who said, after spying out the land, who said, yeah, we can, we can do this. You know, God has brought us this far. He is faithful, and he's going to take us the rest of the way. And so Joshua and Caleb are one of the two uh, survivors of this 40-year wandering in the desert as the, the rest of that generation dies in the desert. Here they are on the east side of the Jordan. Joshua is raised up as a leader, and they're ready to take the land. And so the people are finally prepared. Okay? And so the conquest starts with this kind of a, a miraculous sign from God as they prepare to, to cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. The, the priests pick up the, the Ark of the Covenant and they begin to cross the, the Jordan River. And when they step into the Jordan River, the, the river stops flowing. There's a, a wall of water, right? Uh, the water stops. And so the Israelites are able to cross into the, the promised land on dry ground. And as we can remember uh, that Graham mentioned, this is kind of a throwback to when the Israelites crossed the, the Red Sea on dry land. And so this does two things. It strengthens Israel's faith. They are, they can, obviously God is with us because the, the river stopped, we're able to cross over on dry land, and it also terrified the Canaanites, who were already a little bit nervous about this, this giant uh, tribe of people sitting on the east side of the river waiting to come into the land. And so once they are across the river, they rededicate themselves to God. They build a, an altar to God, and they become, they get circumcised, um, which seems like a, an interesting choice right before they're about to take this land. But the, uh, the, the circumcision, the, the covenant uh, sign of circumcision had been abandoned as they wandered in the desert. And so they, want, they needed to start things off on the right foot, and they wanted to restore that covenant relationship with God. So they got themselves right with God. And after this, Joshua leads them to attack the, uh, the walled city of Jericho. And as they approach Jericho, it's this giant city with these huge walls that seem completely impenetrable for these people who've been wandering around the desert for the last 40 or more years. And so God uh, meets with Joshua and gives him this bizarre battle plan. He says, just march around the city for, for seven days. You're quiet the first six. On the seventh day, you blow some trumpets, you shout, and the walls are going to come crumbling down. So Joshua puts his trust. The people of Israel put their trust in God. They follow this battle strategy. The walls come tumbling down, and they come and uh, they overtake the, the city of Jericho. They get this first major victory in their conquest of Canaan. And we see that God comes through for his people as they put their trust in him. And so after the, the attack on Jericho, there's this big victory. Everybody's excited. It is time to take the, this much smaller city of Ai. I believe that's how you pronounce it, Ai. I. Anyway, so I, and so Israel is, uh, marches on this city of Ai, and they are routed. The, the smaller city stops them. 36 of the Israelites die in this battle, and they are thrown into mass confusion. They're like, we do not understand what is going on. You know, we took Jericho, but here we are on this smaller city, but we can't seem to, we can't take it. What's going on? And so they kind of look into this situation, and they find out that this guy named Achan has taken some plunder from Jericho. 
And God said, don't take anything. You're just going to leave everything from in Jericho and dedicated to the Lord. But Achan decided, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and take some of this stuff. It's pretty nice. God doesn't need all of it. And so he has kind of broken this relationship with, with God. And so he, they, they figure this out. He's identified, and they kill him. And then they decide, all right, let's try again. Let's go on AI. And after, after this situation, they march on AI, and they are victorious. And one thing that, that I learned in my research from one of these, one of these books, one of my resources, um, uh, Richards said, um, these two battles are particularly vital in this initial stage of the conquest. Obedience will bring continued victory, and disobedience will bring defeat. And so it's very interesting, I think, as we see the Israelites, you know, being faithful to God with this crazy battle plan, defeat Jericho, and then because of one man's faithlessness, they are defeated as they attack the smaller city. Well, they continue um, their, in their conquest, and uh, another interesting point is that military strategists actually still look at Joshua's, his, uh, his battle plan, and... Uh, and, and study it because of how what a brilliant strategy it was. He takes the center of the of, Is, of Canaan first, then he moves up into the northern section and takes that, and then moves into the southern section and takes that. And so we can see the wisdom of God being poured out onto Joshua throughout the in, the entire the entire uh, taking uh, of the land of Canaan. And so they do that. They they take the land and. It takes them seven years uh, for, to, to take all of the land of Canaan. And after that, it's divided into the, the 12 tribes. And at this point, Joshua is like 110 years old. And, the, and so the people are finally in the land that they're supposed to be. They're, they're a large nation. Like Graham was saying, you know, the three promises. We're, we're starting to see that second promise come into fulfillment. They are finally in the land that they're supposed to be in. And so Joshua, the book of Joshua, ends on a really, a really positive note. The, the faithful Israelites have restored their covenant relationship with God, and they have, are living in the land that God promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. And they're, so they're finally entering into the rest that God has promised to them. And in Joshua 24, verse 31, it says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. So Joshua ends on a really high note. Everything is, seems to be going pretty well for Israel. And so now they're in the land of Canaan, and they're ready to receive the promises that God has promised to them. And all their, their whole job at this point is to dislodge the rest of the Canaanites. And so in their, as they fought and kind of took the land of Canaan, they haven't gotten rid of everybody. There's still pockets of Canaanites in the land. And so what their job was is to get rid of the Canaanites and cleanse the land from paganism. And so the book of Judges, which is what we're jumping into next, covers the time period from, from the conquering of the promised land to the um, time of, of the monarchy. We don't know exactly how long this period of it is, but the kind of the approximation is about 340 years are covered here in the, the book of Judges. 
And this, coming off of the bright and high point of the book of Joshua, is an incredibly dark time for Israel. The people who had been following God faithfully, uh, they had seen God provide for them and deliver their enemies into their hands, that they restored covenant relationship, we find that they just stumble and they fall. Um, And then the Bible, it says, in the book of Judges, it says, the people served the Lord throughout the time of Joshua. They served God throughout the time of Joshua. But after that generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. So we see that after the generation of, of Joshua that had uh, survived the, the desert, who had seen God miraculously provide for them as they take the, the promised land, these people pass away, and the next generation, they don't remember what God had done for them, and they start serving the Baals, the gods of in the land of Canaan. They are not faithful to get rid of the Canaanites in there. They, they actually start making some uh, relationship with them, and they begin intermarrying with the Canaanites that they're supposed to be destroying, and this leads to them worshiping the, the gods of the Canaanites. And as we'll see over and over again, as we saw in the uh, Golden Calf and various situations uh, up to this point, the Israelites have a real problem falling into worshiping other gods. And it's, and it's, very, it's kind of shocking for us on this side of, of things. It's like, man, how could they keep doing that? How do they make the same mistake over and over and over again? But the people, they, they just get, they get distracted, and they, just, they seem to just kind of easily fall away into idol worship. And in the book of Judges, we see a, a cycle of sin that happens over and over and over again. As you read the book of Judges, you'll see this cycle uh, happen just almost, you know, continually through, through the book. Israel is faithfully serving the Lord. They then fall into sin and idolatry. They are enslaved or they're oppressed by some enemy from the region. Israel cries out to the Lord because they're in pain. God raises up a judge, and Israel is delivered and they start serving the Lord again, and then they begin the cycle all over again. And so uh, over and over in in this 340-year period, we see the Israelites call on God, and he rescues them, you know, miraculously sometimes, and and then they just kind of get used to it, and they fall into sin again. Just the cycle continues, and that is why the the book of Judges is such a, a dark period. We see just the spiritual and the political decline of Israel during this period. And the people have abandoned their faith, and the rest that they were supposed to be enjoying here in the promised land, and the ability to be a blessing to the nations around them is not happening because of their lack of faithfulness, because they're constantly dealing with the oppression that their faithlessness is bringing into their lives. So, Here's just—this is just a list—nope, I gotta do this one. This is a list of the judges, and some of these judges might be familiar to you. Uh, Perhaps you might remember the story of Deborah or of Samson, uh, the the story of Gideon. There's a lot of great stories in in the the book of Judges, and during this time, during this time of these judges kind of rising up and 
getting victory for, for the Israelites, we see a really important theme. We could focus on the darkness and the, the faithlessness of the Israelites, but if you, if you, when you read the whole Old Testament, as you, when you read it as a big story, we see the covenant faithfulness of God shining through. And so even when the Israelites probably deserved just to be smitten, just to be smited, just to be gotten rid of, just to be crushed by God, God, he made a promise to Abraham that I am going to be your God, and he is faithful to this promise. And so he continually hears the cries of his people Israel and comes to their victory, you know, comes to their rescue. During the, the time of the Judges, I just want to touch really quickly on the book of Ruth takes place during the, the time of Judges. And so we can see a story that there are still pockets of faithfulness during this dark time, during this time of decline in Israel. The time of the Judges ends with probably the, the greatest judge, and his name is Samuel. Samuel is a pretty big deal in the Old Testament, and he led the Israelites in, into a season of faithfulness that they had not seen for many, many generations. Uh, he brings the tribes back together to repent and to pray, to try to bring them back into that covenant relationship with God. And he delivers them from the Philistines, and he actually starts bringing them back into a much better place than they had been for, for a long time. But in his old age, he says, you know, that, you know, he's going to pass the leadership of Israel on to his, his kids. And the people are like, no, your kids aren't that great. We, why don't you, we want, we want a king. We would like a king. We want to be like every other nation. And Samuel is a bit disappointed by this. Yes. So Samuel is disappointed, and he, he feels rejected you know, that, they, that the Israelites are rejecting him. So he talks to God about it, and God says, no, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting, they're rejecting me. But go ahead and, and give them a king. And so Samuel comes back to the Israelites and says, I don't think you understand really what you're asking for here. Having a king is not going to be great. He's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your food, he's going to take your fields, he's going to take all this stuff for his own use. You know, I think that it's not what you imagine it is going to be. But they're like, no, we want a king anyway. And so God tells Samuel to anoint Saul. And now Saul is a tall and handsome guy. He, and we, he enters into the, the Bible story, and he's looking for some lost donkeys. And him and his friends, they can't find these donkeys, so they decide, you know what, we're going to go talk to the seer. We'll ask him, you know, what happened to the donkeys. And wouldn't that be great if we just had... If we could just call up Sarah Gerber and be like, hey, I can't find my keys. <laughs> we'll call the Sears. Okay, so, so Saul's looking for his donkey. He goes to the seer. Samuel meets him, and God has uh, highlighted Saul, and Samuel invites him to a feast and anoints Saul as the next king of—or the first king of Israel. Um, excuse me. And so then shortly after this, Saul leads the Israelites into the, in this great victory. Everybody gets really excited about him, and they're like, this guy's going to be a fantastic king. And uh, so Saul is, is the king. We pretty quickly see uh, a decline in, in Saul's life. He begins to make pretty terrible decisions. 
Uh, for example, in, in one case, he's ready to fight. I believe he's ready to fight the Philistines. And Samuel says, all right, well, I, w I need you to wait here for seven days. And on the seventh day, I'm going to come. We're going to offer the, the appropriate sacrifices. Then we're going to attack the Philistines, and then we're, and everything's going to be great. And so Saul is sitting here with his army for, for a, a week. And, you know, they, the people of Israel at this point do not have a lot of iron weapons. Only Saul and his son Jonathan have actual well-made swords. Um, and so, and they're looking at, at the Philistines, who all have great weapons. They have these chariots. Everything, everything is pointing in the, in the Philistines' direction. And so, during, over, the, over the week that Saul is waiting for Samuel, the Israelite army kind of begins to leave and kind of abandon abandoned Saul. And so he's getting a little bit nervous. And, you know, he, I think it gets down to about, it's got like 600 people left or something. It's not very many people. And he's like, I need to, we need to attack these Philistines before everybody's gone. So I'm just going to offer the sacrifice. So he, he, he goes through the sacrifice, and now the priest is the only person who's supposed to do that. And he offers the sacrifice, and no sooner does he finish than Samuel comes up, and he's like, what have you done? And Saul kind of gives his excuse. And at this point, um, uh, Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom is not going to continue on to his descendants. So, in, you know, so Saul, his, the, the line of Saul ends with him. And at this point, you know, the spirit, the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. We'll ask Graham about that later. And then... <laughs> So, so, so Saul, um, to kind of, to help him kind of comfort him from this evil spirit, uh, he has a, a court musician, this, this young kid named David comes, and he plays his harp, and it's kind of soothing, and Saul feels better. Well, David, as you know, as you probably know, has been secretly anointed to be the next king by Samuel. And so David has, um, you know, so we know that there are big things in store for David. So later on, David comes and he kills Goliath as Saul is fighting some more Philistines, and he defeats this giant. He becomes a great military leader, and he becomes very, very popular in Israel. And there is the, the Bible records a song that the women of Israel sang that said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And this upsets Saul a little bit, and he and he's a bit crazy, and he starts—he um, gets incredibly jealous uh, of David, and he starts—he threatens to kill David, and he starts chasing him around the countryside, and David becomes an outlaw, and he's hiding in, in caves, and there's a lot of really interesting stories as David gets chased around the wilderness. But eventually, Saul, uh, in another battle with the Philistines, it, the, the Israelites are defeated, but instead of— uh, getting captured, Saul uh, falls on his own sword, and he, he dies in that battle. And so Saul, the, the, the kingship of Saul, ends there. And David takes his place. This David, who is this young shepherd who was anointed by Samuel to be the king after Saul, so he becomes king first in his home territory of Judah, and eventually over the entire um, the entire nation of Israel. And David does a lot of really amazing and really important things. It's very difficult to sum David up. But one of the things that, 
was important was that he captured uh, the city of Jerusalem, the, the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. And this was a strategic and a, a good move because he made Jerusalem his capital. And at this point, Jerusalem was, was neutral. It wasn't part of the northern uh, territories. It wasn't part of the southern territories. So he takes Jerusalem, he makes that his capital. Show that in that way, he doesn't show preference to the north or to the south. And so he draws the people in. Jerusalem becomes the center of all their religious um, celebration. They bring the ark back in to, into, uh, into Jerusalem. And there, there's, some, there's some interesting stuff that happens there that unfortunately we just don't have time to get into all these great stories. And, but David is a man, as he was bringing the, the ark in, we see that he's just a man that is, has, is faithful and he's dedicated and he's passionate about God. He loves to worship God. And during, during his lifetime, he actually wrote 73 of the 150 psalms that we have, the book of psalms. And um, I just want to touch on that really quickly, that the, the psalms is the—it's basically it's the, the poetry and the, the songs and the prayers that the Israelites used in, as they, they worship God. And so David, uh, along with a number of other people like uh, Solomon and Moses and some guy named Asaph, they all were also uh, wrote many of the Psalms. And so, and so David's heart is to worship God. He's very faithful, and his, he, he wants to build a temple. And God says, no, you can't build a temple because you're a man of war. Uh, but he, at this point, makes a covenant with David, which is known as the Davidic covenant. And he promises that he is going to establish a house for David. And God promises that David's uh, descendant, his son Solomon, will build him a temple. He promises that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne of David forever. And we will see this come up over and over again as the prophets remember this promise that God made to David. And they speak about the sure future of David's house and the sure future of his throne and his city. And the one who will eventually come to rescue God's people that would be a descendant of David. And David wasn't perfect. He had uh, some, some issues. There's the issue with Bathsheba. There's some adultery and some murder in there. But even in his sin, he, we see him as uh, a faithful man of God who, who seeks God and is repentant and is, uh, is passionate to live a life that is pleasing to God. He is known uh, in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And so he is amazingly faithful. And after David passes away, his son Solomon takes the throne of Israel. Now, Solomon is the third and the last king of what is called the United Kingdom of Israel. And he takes over um, in, a, in a really great spot. David has expanded the territory. He's very prosperous. There's no, there's no major battles or wars being fought during this time. And so he begins his rule in this great situation, and just like his father, he's living uh, and he's ruling, dedicated and faithful to the Lord. The, God gives him great wisdom, he gives him great wealth, he gives him great honor. And we see this wisdom um, in the, the book of Proverbs, in the book of Lamentation, in Ecclesiastes, which uh, are both books that Solomon wrote, Proverbs, he wrote uh, a majority of it. And the book of Proverbs is just Solomon passing on his wisdom of how to live life well and how 
you know, to, to find and to gain wisdom and how important that is. The book covers subjects like relationships, it covers finances, it covers attitudes towards work, um, and it covers a, a, a lot of stuff, and you would just see this wisdom that this man, this king, had. In the, the book of Ecclesiastes, um, has kind of a different tone, and some people think it was written towards the end of his life after he kind of falls away a little bit. And Ecclesiastes is about just the, how Solomon just finds that life is meaningless when we don't have God at the center. And so we see just the wisdom pouring out of this guy. Solomon also built the temple of Jerusalem. David had prepared all this stuff, and, uh, and so Solomon takes all the materials that David had prepared, and he builds this glorious, glorious temple in Jerusalem. And things are going really well for Solomon and for Israel. Everything's great until he begins to marry multiple wives. He begins to marry multiple foreign wives. And we see that both of these are prohibited by God for the king. He can't, he can't do either of these things. But Solomon, he begins to do this. And as is the, the case with the rest of Israel, as he marries these these foreign wives, he begins to fall into paganism and begins to fall into worshiping these other gods. And in 1 Kings 11, verse 4, it says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And so as he kind of falls away from God, we see enemies rise up externally, and we see enemies rise up internally in Solomon's kingdom. In Ahijah, the, the prophet comes and he says that the kingdom is going to be torn away from Solomon. But because of his promise to David, he's going to leave a, a tribe for the, uh, the line of David. And so then uh, Solomon, who ruled for 40 years, dies. And, and uh, sorry, <laughs> he dies. <laughs> And so the, the period from Joshua to Solomon, we see some incredibly high points for Israel, and like, you know, like the story of Joshua and the story of David, and we see some of its uh, amazingly dark periods, like the time of the judges and the fall of Saul and the end of Solomon's reign. And, but through it all, we see a picture of a faithful God who has promised to be, to make a covenant with his people, to be in relationship with them. And he's constantly fulfilling that and trying to draw his people back into relationship with him. So now we're going to turn it over to Graham. All right, thank you. Thanks, Mark, for leading us through that section. And um, one thing that's happened so far in the story of the Old Testament is that the nation of Israel has been this collection of 12 tribes. And they've been a collection of 12 tribes for a long time, for hundreds of years, by the time we get to this time period with Solomon. And they've settled the land under Joshua and been established in the land as the 12 tribes. And each of the 12 tribes had their piece of territory in the land of Canaan. And um, they asked for a king, as we just heard about. And there was the three kings, there was Saul, David, and Solomon, that ruled over all of Israel. Now, this is where, for most of us, the story starts to get really complicated and starts to unravel. Because from this point, 
we have two lines of kings that start to emerge in the story. And what happens is this collective uh, nation of Israel is torn into two distinct kingdoms. And so I'm going to talk you through how that happened. And then uh, we're going to talk about the, uh, the kingdom of Israel, which is what's called the northern kingdom of Israel. And we'll talk about that kingdom uh, for the remainder of this session. And it, it'll be pretty quick because we'll, um, the, nation of, uh, the kingdom of Israel to the north did not last as long and did not endure like the southern kingdom of Judah. But we'll, we'll get to all of that. So, um, so the kingdom is divided. So you heard Mark make reference to this idea that there was a united kingdom of Israel. And what happens is after Solomon dies, uh, the kingdom uh, splits. And the seeds for this whole event where the kingdom split, Mark kind of touched on those at the end, where Solomon had married, intermarried with, the nation of Israel had intermarried uh, with all of these other different nations through Solomon marrying these foreign wives. And there had been both internal and external political pressures and different things that were happening towards the very end of his reign. And what happened is after Solomon died, everything began to unravel. One of the confusing parts that happens here, and all of this, by the way, is, is captured in the book of First and Second Kings. So First uh, and Second Kings, obviously, it outlines the life of the kings in the Old Testament. And what begins to get very confusing is you'll see accounts like, uh, while so-and-so was king of Israel, this other person was king of Judah. And you're like, well, what? hang on, what just happened there? And it's important for us to realize that the two king, that these, this split in the kingdom takes place and kind of why that happened and, and how that um, begins to um, split the story of the Old Testament in two different directions. And so I'm going to talk about the northern kingdom of Israel, which is one direction the story splits, and then Mark in the final section will take us through the story of the kingdom of Judah in the south, which is ultimately the kingdom that endures. So at the end of Solomon's life, he passes away, and there's this split in the kingdom. And before Solomon had died, he had said to one of his sons, he had said to a son called Rehoboam, and you're going to have to pay close attention here because these names rhyme. They're pretty close. And so that's why I have Rehoboam versus Jeroboam, because ultimately that's what it comes down to. But uh, Rehoboam is the son. He's the son of Solomon. And Solomon, before he dies, says to Rehoboam, I want you to be king. Now remember, Solomon is thinking that the kingdom is going to stay united. So he says to Rehoboam, you are my successor. You are the successor to my throne, and you will reign over the, this united, what we would call the United Kingdom of Israel all 12 tribes. So Rehoboam begins, and he has, he has a very brief time where that happens. But there's another guy on the scene called Jeroboam. And Jeroboam had been a, a advisor, a close advisor to King Solomon. And so King Solomon uh, is ruling, it's towards the end of his reign, and Jeroboam, uh, as this trusted advisor, is ambitious. And one day, a prophet comes to Jeroboam and says to him, you will ultimately reign over, over these tribes. Ultimately, you will reign. You will, you will be installed as ruler, except for the tribe of Judah. So Jeroboam jumps the gun a little bit because the next thing we read is that Solomon sends him into exile. And so we don't know exactly what happened, but reading between the lines... Jeroboam clearly goes to Solomon and tries to take charge while Solomon is still alive. 
So you think the Bible is this nice story, right, where everyone likes each other and people get along, but it's full of political intrigue, personal dynamics, nations rising against nation. And sometimes I think we, we feel like, man, the Bible times, it was so smooth sailing. People just listened to God and got along with each other. Not the case. So Jeroboam is sent into exile. And where does he go? He goes to Egypt. So Solomon tells Jeroboam, you, go, you know, you've tried to rise against me. You have to go to Egypt. So Jeroboam goes to Egypt and waits until King Solomon dies. Jeroboam hears that Solomon has died, comes back to Israel, comes back to Jerusalem. Now, Jeroboam is well-liked, and the people actually gather around Jeroboam. And they, Jeroboam goes with the people to Rehoboam, remember, it's the son who Solomon said he wants to rule. So Jeroboam and the people, they come, and they basically say to Rehoboam, what kind of king will you be? Are you going to be a good king, or are you going to be a bad king? And Rehoboam says, give me some, di- give me some time to think about it. I'll... I, I will go and I'll and I'll work it out. So Rehoboam goes and talks to a couple of different sets of advisors. He talks to these old wise advisors who say, given the state of affairs, you need to be gracious. You need to be a gracious ruler and you need to care for these people and you need to be gracious to them. And he said, okay. So he turns to a group of young advisors and he said, what do you think I should do? And they say, you need to rule these people with an iron fist. You need to crush them. You need to show what kind of king you will be. And he uses this illustration, you know, about his little finger being stronger than his father's waist. And he just kind of goes into all of these details about what kind of king he will be. And so what happens? is the people side with Jeroboam, and the kingdom splits. Because the people will not accept Rehoboam to be that kind of king over them. However, two of the 12 tribes do remain with Rehoboam. And this is a continuation of the promise that is given to King David. And so the tribes of Benjamin and Judah stay separate from the northern kingdom of Israel. And so now we have, instead of one united kingdom of Israel, we have two kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom of Israel, and we have a southern kingdom of Judah. So we have this split. Well, if you are uh, Jeroboam, you have a major problem. Even though you've gotten 10 of the 12 tribes, the major problem you have is that the capital city and the Ark of the Covenant and the temple are all now in the southern kingdom. They're all in Jerusalem. And if you remember back to the law, if you've read the law, there's at least three times a year where all the people of Israel are required to show up in Jerusalem to worship God. So that's a big problem for Jeroboam because three times a year, most of his population, if not all of them, are going to be going into the southern kingdom, to the very heart of the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam's worried that they're going to turn against him and either settle in the southern kingdom or they'll come back and say, we don't want you as king. So what does he do? He establishes two alternative places for the people of Israel to worship, for those who are in the northern kingdom to worship. And he creates one in the north called Dan and one in the south called Bethel. And 
if you are setting up somewhere for people to worship, you need s some kind of religious symbolism. You need something to capture people's imagination as they're worshiping. And so what does he set up? The golden calf. So why would he, why would he do that? Why would he set up the golden calves? Well, the golden calf cult, or this whole idea that you would worship a golden calf, was actually pretty familiar to the Egyptians. Uh, the golden calf was considered to be one of their, their gods, and um, helps explain also why Aaron made a golden calf when the people came out of Egypt and were in the desert. This whole idea of a golden calf as a god who was a protector and a giver of life was very familiar. Uh, just kind of in the region. And it's, it's possible, it's very likely that Jeroboam um, got this whole idea of the golden calf and that the people should worship the golden calf from his time in exile in Egypt before he came back to the kingdom of Israel. And so what he said is, essentially, you need to worship the golden calf. This golden calf is now your God. And you should not go to Jerusalem. Uh, you can forget all about that going to Jerusalem. Instead, uh, I want you to go to either Dan or Bethel. These are the places that you'll go to worship. And unfortunately, this took the focus of the people of Israel in the northern kingdom. It took their focus off of God. It took their focus off of Yahweh and meant that it established this pattern where the people of the northern kingdom of Israel just lived in idolatry and just struggled to ever really faithfully follow God. Now, the way the story of the Old Testament unfolds is it focuses on two different types of people. It focuses on kings, and it focuses on prophets. So the way our Old Testament is set up is in the book of Kings, you know, we have First and Second Kings, we have Chronicles, and we have these kind of historical books. And then towards the end of the Old Testament, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you know, Jonah, Amos. You have all of these prophetic books. And so it's very easy for us in our minds when we approach the Old Testament to think that all of the action involving the kings happens first. And then there's this period of time where only the prophets are in charge. But in reality, the lives of the prophets and the kings are intermingled. So when you're reading closely in the books of kings, first and second kings, you'll see that, you know, in the reign of King Uzziah, Isaiah the prophet shows up. And so what that tells you is an example of the fact that the, the records of the prophets, the prophetic books like Isaiah that we have, the events in that book correlate with that time period. And so as I teach the remainder of this time and as Mark teaches in the kingdom of Judah, you're going to hear us talk about, well, during the reign of this king, this prophet emerged and had this message. And together, the prophets and the kings are the two different types of people who drive the story forward. It's a little bit like when you study U.S. history. What do you typically focus on? Well, President so-and-so, this is what they did. And, and, you know, this other really important politician maybe had this voice or this to say or that to say. But, you know, one of the easy ways to understand national history is to look at the leaders and what did the leaders do. And it's the same for the Old Testament. We really get a, a sense of what did the kings do and what did the prophets do because they are the major representatives of this time period. So this shows you how the kingdom splits. And you can see with a star right in the middle is Jerusalem. And you can see the blue territory is the kingdom of Israel to the north. And to the south, the kingdom of Judah. And look at all these other nations that are around. The kingdom of Edom, kingdom of Moab, Ammon, Aramean tribes. 
And right up in the top right corner, you'll see Damascus and the Assyrian Empire. And that will be important later. Just to remember that all of these other nations are surrounding the nation of Israel. So what does the story of the northern kingdom of Israel look like? Well, in total, there were 19 kings who ruled over Israel. And unfortunately, they were all deemed to be evil <laughs> by God. They were not wise and godly rulers. They were rulers who were themselves living in wickedness and did not follow God, and they encouraged their people to do likewise. Here's a list of the kings of Israel in the northern kingdom. Starting with Jeroboam, we just heard about him. He was the first one. He established the, um, the shrines at Dan and Bethel, and it goes down the left-hand column. Jump up, Jehoahaz would have followed Jehu, and all the way down to Hosea, who was the last king of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Now, there's a couple of kings in particular I'm going to make a reference to. Most of these kings, there's very little historical record. They came, they were a bad king, and they died, and the next king came in their place. Um, but there are a couple of kings in particular I want to talk about. Ahab, who was bolded there on that first column, and then also Jeroboam II, who you see on that right-hand column. And the reason I'm going to talk about them is because there are particular prophets who come into the Bible story during the reign of these kings. And I'm going to talk about those prophets in just a moment here. But as I talk about these prophets, and as I say, they emerged during the reign of Ahab, and they emerged during the reign of Jeroboam II, you get a sense of kind of where they fall in, in order. So just jumping back to this slide real quick, all of these kings were deemed to be evil by God, and instead of there just being one family line where the king would be in, in on the throne, and then it would go to his son, and then to his son, and to his son, instead you have all of these different families who are vying for political control and who are trying to rule. And it's a turbulent, turbulent time. Of the 19 kings, seven were assassinated, one committed suicide, one was stricken by God, and one was sent into exile. And the average length that they ruled on the throne was 10 years. Now, some ruled a lot longer than 10 years, some ruled a lot shorter than 10 years. Now, as I mentioned, there are prophets that are also in the land as well as kings. So the kings are ruling, but the prophets are sent by God at various points in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. And those prophets are sent with a particular message. So the prophets come and they say, this is the word from God. And sometimes in Hebrew, the prophet is referred to as the mouth of God. That's how literal it is that God is speaking through these prophets. And so these prophets would come and speak. And the prophets wouldn't speak in abstract terms. They wouldn't say, you know, they didn't come and they weren't philosophers. They would come and they would talk about very real situations. And they would talk about very real problems that were happening. And there are some of the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament that were in the northern kingdom. They prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. And there were other prophets who prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah. And what I'm going to take you through are the, the, the few prophets that were part of the northern kingdom. And Mark, in his final session, will talk about the ones who were associated with the southern kingdom of Judah. But essentially, the history of the kings and the prophets are tied together, where they're both um, 
they're both functioning together. And the prophets would come in and give guidance and try to give the word of the Lord to these kings who were ruling and who were evil kings. And they would, the prophets would come and say, no, you need to do this right. The judgment of God is going to come if you don't turn things around. Now, most of the major prophets in the Bible and the Old Testament, have, we have a written book that is named after that prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I mean, we have these written books, but there are other prophets who never had a book written after them, and probably foremost in the Old Testament story of these prophets are Elijah and Elisha. And they were on the scene around the same time as during the reign of King Ahab. So remember King Ahab and that list of kings? During the time of King Ahab, you have the, you have the, the prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Now, King Ahab was particularly notorious in the list of bad kings because he made following uh, Baal the official state religion. Now, Mark touched on this idea of, of, of Baal as being a false god, being a foreign god. And what was a very common notion in these, in these times is that you would have a physical, you would have the physical geography of, of the land. And that if you lived in that land, that you would pray to the God of that particular land. And so before the Israelites arrived, Baal was the God who was considered to be the ruler of the land of Canaan. So when the Israelites showed up and they said, well, we worship Yahweh, that was a really big problem because people believed that the physical dirt, the physical soil was, was the soil that if you stood on that soil, you had to worship Baal. So that seems really strange to us because we don't think that way. But for them, they really thought that way. That whatever dirt you stood on, you prayed to that God. If you want an example of this, think back to the story of Naaman. So you remember Naaman? He's the commander in a foreign army. He gets leprosy. He's told to go to Elisha because Elisha, the prophet, can maybe pray for him and get healed. So he comes in, and this is during the time of this is during the time of uh, Elisha's ministry. So Naaman comes in, and remember, he's told, go dip in the Jordan seven times. He's like, why would I do that? The Jordan is a horrible river compared to all the great rivers we have. Back home, he's like, why would I do that? So eventually he does that. He goes down seven times, comes up, and remember, he's fully healed. He goes back to the prophet, and he's like, I want to give you all these gifts because I'm healed. And Elisha says, no, don't, I don't need any of your gifts. But I don't know if you remember what Naaman says next, but he asks, can I take as much dirt from this land as, as mules will, my mules will be able to hold, and I want to bring it back to my home country so that I will be able to appropriately pray to your God, to Yahweh, who has healed me. And so what is he saying? He's saying, I want to come back, and I want to put this dirt on the ground, and then anytime I want to pray to Yahweh, I'm going to stand on this dirt, because if I stand on this dirt, I know my prayers will be answered. And so this is just a, a very typical way that people thought. So the Israelites coming in and taking the land and establishing this monarchy and all these sites to worship God, that was a huge, that was a huge deal because it was basically saying Baal is not in charge anymore. And the ministry of Elijah and Elisha was basically saying to Ahab, you know what, you're trying to make Baal the official god of this land, but really it's Yahweh. And the whole ministry of Elijah and Elisha was to show that Baal was really not the true king. And so how, what are some of the ways that this would happen? Well, Baal, the actual name Baal means husband, or it means lord, or it means master. And so people thought of him in that way. They thought about him as the lord, as the master, as a husband, that type of god. And so 
Baal was also known for a few other things. He was supposed to be the storm god who controlled the rain. Okay, so when you needed it to rain on your crops, you would give sacrifice to Baal. Well, I don't know if you remember the story of Elijah, but Elijah prayed to God and there was a drought. So if you followed Baal, that was really awkward that you would pray to Baal and there was no rain because Elijah had prayed to Yahweh and there was no rain. Baal was also the one who was supposed to ensure that there were bountiful harvests. I don't know if you remember, but Israel experiences extreme famine during this drought. And yet, amazingly, when Elijah and Elisha need grain and when they need oil, they have as much as they need. Baal is also supposed to be the one who controls lightning and fire. And so you remember that story where they build the altar, one to Baal and one to Yahweh. And what happens? The priests, they try to command fire to come. And Baal should be able to do that because he's supposed to be the god of fire. What happens? No fire comes. Elijah prays to Yahweh and fire comes. Finally, Baal is supposed to be able to control life and death. And it's Elijah and Elisha whose ministry demonstrates that God is able to raise the dead. So that is a really clear example of the battles that are going on in the land at this time. You have evil kings trying to put in a system where God is being deposed and Baal is being installed as the official God. And you have the prophets who are the voice speaking for Yahweh and saying, no, you cannot take this course of action. God is the one who is in charge. So that's very, that's a very clear example of the dynamics that are happening at this time. Now, during the, I'm going to talk about uh, three other prophets, and then we'll, we'll wrap up, and I'm going to do this very quickly. The three other prophets I'm going to talk about who prophesied in this northern kingdom of Israel are Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. And I'll just go through them quickly in turn. So Jonah is a really unique uh, book in the Old Testament because it tells the story of one particular incident in the life of Jonah. Most of the prophetic books are a series of proclamations or speeches or things that the prophets do. But Jonah, it's about one particular story. Now Jonah, we really know about because of Sunday school, most of us, right? It's a great story to tell kids. What, the fish ate Jonah for three days? You know, and so what's the whole point of the Jonah story? Well, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, that great wicked city. Nineveh is a symbol of, of wickedness for the Old Testament Israelites. I mean, if you said, you know, that would be, you know, think of the absolute opposing city to anything that your nation held dear, you know? So um, think about just, just the heart of enemy territory. God says, go to Nineveh. Why would I go to Nineveh? Those people are wicked and they would never want to hear from God. So that's why Jonah runs away. I mean, we think Jonah was selfish, but Jonah, you know, that was not an easy assignment. So Jonah goes and tries to flee from God, and we all know from Sunday school that the fish and God conspired to make sure that he got to Nineveh. And, um, and it's, this, it's just this incredible snapshot where we see that God has compassion and mercy on whoever he wants to have compassion and mercy. And it's a message for Israel, but it's a message that's essentially timeless where if God wants to bring his message of forgiveness and compassion to the enemy, that, you know, whatever we, you would consider to be your enemy, that God is well within his right to do that, and he, and he will do that. And sometimes the people who we don't think God would ever want to reach are the exact people that God sends us to 
And that's the message of Jonah. Okay, moving along quickly, the next prophet is Amos. Now, Amos is interesting because he was actually a farmer. He was a dresser of fig trees, and uh, whatever that means, and he lived just south of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah, and God said, I want you to go and prophesy to the northern kingdom. So this is an example of a prophet being sent from the southern kingdom to prophesy in the northern kingdom. And he goes to one of those sites that Jeroboam had established. He goes to Bethel. So remember, Bethel is one of the two centers where they would worship the golden calves. So it's not exactly, you know, a place where he may feel welcome. But anyway, God sends Amos. And this is during the reign of Jeroboam II. So you remember one of those other kings that I highlighted on that list. So this is a little bit after Ahab, um, closer to the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so... um, Basically, this happens during the reign of Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II reigned for quite a long period of time. So Amos is sent, and he basically is sent during a time of political and military prosperity. So even though um, kind of morally and spiritually things were in a bad place, it's not as if the kingdom of Israel didn't have good times in terms of materialism, in terms of, you know, their borders being secure they still had kings who would go and do battle. And so Jeroboam actually reigned, Jeroboam II reigned in a time when there was actually some sense of national stability, even in the midst of this kind of moral decline that was happening. So Amos goes, and he said, essentially, there's massive amounts of corruption, injustice, morality is terrible. You need to turn and follow God, or destruction is going to come upon you. And he tried to warn that the injustice and everything that was happening in the, in the kingdom of Israel was, was not acceptable in God's eyes, and that it was a warning to Jeroboam. And it's done through a series of visions and pictures. Now, unfortunately, Amos's prophecy was not heeded, so God has to send another prophet, and he sends the prophet Hosea, again during the reign of Jeroboam II. And we know the story of Hosea because Hosea is, is told by God to marry the prostitute Gomer. And Gomer is obviously unfaithful to the prophet Hosea. And it was a picture of God's faithfulness to Israel, even though Israel was being unfaithful. And Hosea embodied the faithfulness of God, where God would stay faithful to the people of Israel, despite their unfaithfulness to him. And Gomer would be unfaithful to Hosea, and yet Hosea was to stay faithful to Gomer. Again, God, using Hosea, talks about the fact that if Israel does not change her ways, that a judgment is coming. Unfortunately, none of this was heeded by the kingdom of Israel. And in 722 BC, so 722 years before the birth of Christ, the Assyrians come in and they conquer Israel. So remember in that top corner, we saw the Assyrian Empire. Well, they come in, they were, they were a ruthless and greatly feared empire at the time. And they came in and they just swept all before them. And they took over the kingdom of Israel. And Israel, kingdom of Israel essentially ceased to exist and has not existed. Those t- 10 tribes, they kind of just dissipated into history. And unfortunately, after around 200 years of the existence of the northern kingdom of Israel, it is no more. 
The southern kingdom of Judah still, still is in existence at this point. And many of the Israelites from the northern kingdom actually flee to the southern kingdom of Judah for, for safety. And some are brought into captivity by the Assyrians. And so why did this happen? Why would God have this kingdom basically end? And really it's failure of the Israelites to keep relationship with God. That it could only go on so long that the people of Israel would continue to live in wickedness before God. And why that is such a big deal is tied with that third promise given to Abraham, where his descendants were supposed to be a blessing to all nations. They were supposed to be an example to all nations of how relationship with Yahweh was supposed to be. And generation after generation in the northern kingdom were not living and fulfilling that third part of the promise. And God had to come in and basically take very drastic means. As I said, the southern kingdom still exists at this point, And Mark's going to lead us through that southern kingdom of Judah in our next session. So again, take a moment, write a question or two, comment, things that you're not sure about. And it will take about a five to ten minute break and then we'll wrap up. Is it okay if we go a few minutes after 12 today? We started a little bit late. If we go about another 10 minutes after 12, is that all right? All right? Okay, great.